1: Uh, today, I'm joined by a panel of reporters. Uh, we have uh, Meredith Summers from here at Federal News Radio. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, and on the phone, Eric Yoder of the Washington Post. Uh, thank you for having me too. Thanks so much uh, to you both here. I'm also joined by my uh, co-host and colleague Nikki Cannon, also of uh, the, Shaw, uh, the law firm of Shaw, Branson, and Roth. And uh, today, we're we're going to be hosting a round uh, roundtable of of these reporters and uh, and those of us who cover Congress, and and kind of giving a uh, Check up on what what happened in this uh, first half of the congressional session. Uh, we're now in a, a summer break. Uh, obviously, the, con- the uh, political conventions are going on, and then looking ahead towards uh, the future today. So, uh, really appreciate our guests um, joining us today, and uh, looking forward to the uh, conversation. So, uh, why don't, with that, why don't we just uh, dive in and uh, talk about a little bit about. Uh, what did Congress accomplish in this first part of the session before they uh, left town for this uh, long recess here? Uh, Nikki, can you give us kind of a little bit of a a framing, and then we can have uh, Meredith and Eric talk about some of the specifics?
2: You know, Jason, um, one of the the things that Congress did accomplish before they they, uh, headed home, um, headed out to the conventions and home for for August recess is the FAA reauthorization, which as you pointed out a little earlier to me today, uh, was it, it's a very important um, bill that is necessary to continue to keep this country running. So I think we have to give uh, a shout out to those folks who helped uh, accomplish that. There are a couple of things you know that we're still waiting to see what progresses in um, September. But um, just major kudos to those guys who got that through before they headed out today.
1: Absolutely. Well, in, in addition to that, you know, each each chamber has passed some pieces of legislation. Um, one of those will will be a key theme throughout kind of the program today, and that was uh, a pretty significant uh, government reform and improvement act that the House uh, of Representatives have had passed. Uh, you know, that bill is facing a veto threat from from the White House, but uh, hits on some of the themes that we'll be talking today in terms of uh, accountability, uh, workforce improvement issues. Uh, uh, Eric, are you able to talk to us a little bit about what was in that bill?
3: Well, the, the bill, I think, is effectively the House's stab at civil service reform for this year. I, I have a hard time seeing that anything bigger than this will pass. Uh, they tried to tie together a number of bills which had passed through the uh, committee level, some of which actually did have bipartisan support as they were coming through the committee. Uh, one key feature, of course, would uh, uh, basically apply... Uh, to all SES employees government-wide, the same sort of uh, abbreviated appeal process that has been in effect only at the VA since uh, uh, two years ago. Uh, that provision uh, did was one of those that did draw a veto uh, threat, and it also is very dicey because the administration has already said that it will no longer uh, enforce those provisions at the VA because of some legal issues, which I'm sure you've spoken about on this program many times. A couple other things in that are are not as controversial, and and in fact the the veto threat did not specifically mention them. Uh, One is to extend uh, the uh, probationary period for uh, newly hired employees to two years uh, rather than one year, and of course that's important for a number of reasons, including the fact that during the probationary period people have very few uh, rights to uh, appeal disciplinary actions, including firing. Um, the uh, another provision that is is in there which uh, did draw a, a veto effect uh, veto threat excuse me uh, um, involves uh, official time um, and uh, this is something that the Republicans have been pushing against for a number of years and the provision would not actually restrict official time but it would require a very specific reporting on it, which of course could lay the groundwork to uh, restrictions in the future. <coughs> Um, Those are the main things. Uh, There's also some provisions in there uh, regarding, quote-unquote, midnight rulemaking, which are not really specific to the federal workforce, but uh, is is an issue that always arises during a presidential transition where uh, the uh, opposition party tries to prevent the sitting administration from uh, um, issuing a lot of last-minute policies that would take a lot of work to undo uh, uh, in a new administration.
1: Thank you so much, Eric. And and you mentioned uh, a couple of those uh, big provisions in the bill that have, have driven ire and also been driving part of the conversation. And uh, Congress uh, pr- particularly focused on executives and, and some of the issues that uh, continue to fall out from from the Veterans Administration uh, scandal a few years ago. Uh, Meredith, I know you and your colleagues here at Federal News Radio have uh, really been watching this story uh, because it does have pretty big implications for, for the federal workforce and the civil service writ large.
4: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um- at least, it, well, over in the Senate, uh, the VA committee over there passed the Omnibus Veterans' First Act, and in that, it talks about transferring uh, Title Five or SESers down to Title Title Thirty Eight, and that really set up a lot of red flags for um, the executive service, and as far as you know, okay, well, what's going to happen because there's there was such a series of back and forths and passing and pass backs uh, with the Merit Systems Protection Board, and you know where. Where can we come in? At, w- w- at what point can the the senior, the, well, the leadership at the VA? When can they actually step in and do something? Um, and so, yeah, that's that was a really big issue for the Senate. So they've got that uh, John McCain introduced a bill in May uh, to, to he added on into that uh, the current Veterans uh, Choice Program, making that permanent. Um, that's not really with SES, but everything is just getting lumped into this one omnibus bill.
1: Absolutely, when, and you know, I think that this this broader conversation is really interesting. You know, aside from from some of those bills that you had mentioned, Meredith, in in the Senate, as well as some of the uh, uh, the action that we're seeing in the House, whether it's from the Oversight Committee, this this big uh, kind of omnibus uh, civil service bill that that Eric discussed, uh, as well as some of the various legislation we we're seeing out of uh, some of the uh, the House Veterans Affairs Committee, it's. Really looking at civil service reform through different lenses and, and trying to find where where is the edge on, on due process on notice on some of these other issues that are are somewhat fundamental to uh, federal employees and uh, you know at the end of the day there is a constitutionally guaranteed right to, to a certain level of, of due process in, in the civil service and uh, it, there appears to be a, a a real effort to to kind of find where that that line may be.
4: Well, we were even just talking earlier in the appropriations they're trying to to inject accountability accountability into there, like with uh appropriations for the irs they're trying to get a ban on raises as well as rehiring for employees at the irs who've been tax delinquent so even in there in this in uh the small, the fine print they're trying to, to have a little bit more control over the behavior of the employees and uh who they're hiring and, and uh, firing
3: yeah i I, w- I would agree with that and you know uh th- to your point jason regarding the uh uh, trying to find where's where's the proper balance of, of due process versus ability to manage your workforce. Uh, just before the recess, the House actually introduced a separate bill. Uh, the, the Jeff, uh, Jeff Miller, the chairman of the uh, VA committee there, uh, which, again, like a lot of these things, is is probably a bellwether for what could be done government-wide and in that bill they actually try they actually backtrack a little bit on the SES language where they would uh instead of having this very uh shortened process at the MSPB for the executives they would um uh, have all their their appeals go into uh the a, a similar sort of thing to the title 8 where it would be uh, reviewed by an internal agency Uh, uh, review committee, basically, and that committee would have certain uh, deadlines uh, set for them to make a decision or else the agency would win by default. Similarly, in that bill, they would apply certain provisions to the entire uh, uh, VA workforce, which is, you know, something over 300,000 strong. Uh, where they would basically shorten the MSPB uh, appeal process, but they would try to overcome this objection to the lack of appeal rights beyond the administrative hearing level by allowing the full MSPB and on into federal court uh, to review the decisions of the hearing officers. Uh, but there would also, again, be uh, uh, tighter deadlines uh, put on the whole policy. And if you do something like that with the VA workforce, it's really hard to see how you would not at least try to extend it to all federal employees because you would end up with with a, uh, a two-level system that would uh, vary according to where you work. And there's a very strong uh, emphasis in the federal government towards equity and to not having different systems for one agency versus the other. When you're talking about something as fundamental as uh, employee due process rights, or again issues such as uh, you know benefits and, and those sorts of policies. So um, you know if if if, a, if that is used as a compromise, uh, I think that uh, lays the groundwork very much, no matter who's president, who controls Congress next year, for an effort to do this government wide.
1: Yeah, you, you know, you make a, a really interesting point, Eric. And and one of the things that's been very interesting to to us and, and those who are watching uh, some of these debates is uh, there does appear to be uh, multiple efforts to to, to, to to get at this issue from, from different angles. But at the same time, there is some value in, uh, as you point out, the consistency of, of an across-the-board policy. And, and Uh, especially for employee advocates uh, uh, such as myself and Nikki in our other capacities uh, when we're not hosting the radio show. Um, uh, At the end of the day, uh, sometimes we don't necessarily even understand the rules that we have in place right now. Um, and uh, and some of the proposals that, that we see from from our point of view are uh, are potentially might be going at at the issue in, in, uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily get that and, and if we do go down this path when every agency gets its own set of rules and procedures, uh, we think that that will only um, potentially make it more complicated and more cumbersome for both Congress as well as agencies and an administration to, uh, to execute and, and carry out those rules. So it'll uh, uh, definitely be an interesting conversation to see how this evolves um, going forward. Um, after our break, we're going to pick up the conversation um, where Meredith had touched on um, some of the issues around what's in some of these appropriations bills. And we're going to talk about the the future for appropriations bills uh, after our first break and a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Federal News Radio.
2: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Today we are featuring a reporter roundtable discussion on what Congress accomplished in its last session and what we can expect in September. So Meredith, uh, you hit a little bit on appropriations before uh, we went into our break, uh, and I just want to bring us back around to that. Congress did leave one thing, um, a major uh, provision, un, uh, unaccomplished to this point. They uh, left town without finishing up with the NDAA. You want to give us a little bit of info on that? Yes. So the the bill that funds the Defense Department,
4: uh, that still needs to get... Uh agreed upon and and gratified and passed uh and they do it every year they've done it for 50 years but right now it's a little dicey uh the senate proposed it's it's 602 billion dollars uh their bill and the house has got its own version as well and the white house is saying we're we're not too impressed with with either of them and have threatened to veto uh in the senate's version it bars closing guantanamo bay uh it also denies the pentagon's bid to uh, start another base realignment, the brac and closing some of the bases. The Pentagon says, "Hey, we've got enough areas and spots for training. Let's close them down." But actually, both bills they they want to to bar that, um, and it also mandates the Senate version that women sign up for potential military duty. So that um, you know, reports have said, "Well, that might kind of blur the lines a little bit when it comes to you know transgender." They were talking about that right uh, before they finished up uh, the House bill. Um, that uh, is also getting a little bit of criticism from the White House. It wants to cut uh, the Undersecretary of Defense uh, acquisition and technology. It also gives a little bit more power to the Defense Secretary uh, to move around resources and cross funding. Uh, so anyway, they need to come back um, back in September and, and hash that out. Because, again, it's uh, more than half of the, the country's budget, but they, they are still hashing out a lot there.
2: Yeah.
1: And uh, I know that before before the break, both both leave the Congress left town uh, with with the NDA on the table as well as the uh, the defense appropriations bills that that back that up. And uh, uh, one of those themes there is and, and that uh, some of the what, what the White House has pushed back on on um, both the NDA and some of these appropriations bills is. Uh, kind of an accusation that the Congress is overly micromanaging uh, agency operations. And and I think that that's kind of consist, consistent with that government reform bill that we had uh, talked about earlier. Uh, Eric, are you able to unpack that a little bit and talk about a couple of those other uh, issues that that we're seeing in those bills, uh, pr- including one that I know you've written about uh, in terms of the debate around how veterans' preferences applied in the federal government?
3: Uh, yes. The, you know, the D- NDAA uh, – often becomes the Christmas tree on which all sorts of ornaments get hung. And that's you know the case again this year because it is a must-pass bill. As, as she said, it's been done for 50 years or more in a row now. So uh, there's a strong expectation that if Congress does anything, it will pass at least this uh, along with some form of uh, continuing budget. Uh, the veterans' preference issue is, was a surprise to a lot of people. The, uh, uh, I did not write about that directly. Uh, my colleague Lisa Ryan did. But basically uh, the Pentagon came to uh, the Senate side, particularly uh, Chairman uh, McCain, and said uh, uh, the way veterans' preference works right now, we are being forced to put some people in jobs for which we really don't think they are qualified, and these are not the people we would want in these jobs, but we have to hire these veterans uh, because of veterans' preference. And specifically, what they're talking about is not so much the initial hire, but after somebody already has been in the federal government, the question is, should veterans' preference continue to apply to a subsequent job? Now, veterans' preference does not apply to internal agency uh, promotions, say you get hired by the agency as a GS-7 uh, and they promote you to GS-9 over somebody else who is also a GS-7, uh, veterans preference doesn't come into play there. Where it comes into play is if I work for the Army and I see a job over down the hall at the Air Force, which is uh, more attractive to me, I apply for that along with a bunch of other people. I still get veterans' preference in consideration for that job because it's not considered an internal promotion. Same thing would happen. Is for example, if I went to uh, work for the, the, the VA or any of the, any of the other agencies. So uh, the, the Senate language it was very much a surprise because obviously veterans' preference is kind of a third rail. Uh, and the House uh, very quickly is as a part of a, an amendment to a separate bill, an, an appropriations bill. Uh, They added an amendment saying, no, leave veterans preference alone. So there's there's going to have to be something done about that on the the conference between the House and the Senate on the NDAA, which is the natural place where a provision like that would would be addressed. There was also a more minor change in veterans preference in the Senate bill having to do with the issue of military retirees and them coming to work for the executive branch uh, within six months of them retiring. There's a general policy against it, uh, but that policy has been uh, observed mostly in the breach for a long time. And very specifically, there's been an exception that was passed in the wake of 9-11, which uh, is getting used very commonly now. And again, for similar reasons, the Pentagon went to the Senate and said, uh, this is causing us to have to put people in jobs uh, where we really want somebody else, but we have no choice. We have to hire the person with the veteran's preference.
1: Thanks for covering that. And uh, w- what is the current status of the, the defense authorization? Are, are we in conference committee yet, uh, or, or is that process not yet kicked off? Uh,
3: both both uh, sides have uh, voted to uh, uh, authorize the conference, and they have both na- uh, named their conferees. Typically what happens in a situation like this during the August recess when both chambers have passed uh, their bill is that a lot of staff work gets done over the recess uh and so when they come back in september uh, a lot of the underbrush will have been cleared out Uh, but issues such as guantanamo and where are they going to get the money and registration for the uh, draft all these sorts of things are, are big issues and those certainly would not be resolved at the staff level so i mean with congress only being in session for about four weeks in september uh I think there's a pretty strong likelihood that this bill will end up getting pushed off until after the election
1: Interesting well we'll we'll, we'll have to see what uh what happens there. And, uh, you know, this, this, this broader conversation um, around uh, vets preference, uh, I know that, that some of the members of, of the, uh, the VA committees, both in the House and Senate, have also been weighing in. And as you point out, um, it's unclear if this will be an issue that, that can be resolved at the staff level, or if it will ultimately be decided um, once the members are able to uh, get back together and, uh, and, and find a path forward.
3: I uh you know the, the typical response in these situations is to uh order a study. I would not be too surprised if that's done, but I, I don't know what point having a study would be. You either uh, think this is a case or you don't think this is the case and I'm not sure exactly what could be accomplished, but you know uh, often they they that is the result.
1: Great. I also wanted to uh to circle back to to our kind of broader conversation around um with the status of appropriations. Um, this year uh, started off with a, a pledge by um, Majority Leader McConnell as, as well as uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan to, to return to regular order. And uh, that ultimately did, did not necessarily go as planned, uh, partially because uh, various uh, social and, and uh, policy issues have, um, as has become the case in, in in recent years, been interjected into the conversation around. Uh, appropriations. Uh, where are we at on, on some of the status of, of those bills? And, um, you know, I, we'll, we'll later in the show talk about the prospect going forward, but I think it's uh, useful to, to just understand where we are at this point in time.
0: Well,
3: either the House or the Senate uh, has passed almost all of uh, the 12, I believe, out of committee, I'm, uh, but uh, only a few of them have gotten to floor votes Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the key ones for for federal employees of course is the one that's called the financial services and and general government bill and that's the one that funds agencies such as opm and the mspb eoc all those sorts of agencies it also becomes the vehicle for uh, things like uh, trying to set uh, policies regarding pay raise issues like that and so um, uh, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done on that. And I think really at this point, nobody expects uh, Congress to enact all 12 of these bills in the regular process, Um, certainly not by the end of September. We're looking certainly in September at some sort of short-term continuing budget resolution, which could continue probably into maybe uh, past the elections, early December, something like that. Uh, There's also... Some talk about kicking it over into uh, early in the new year, say February or March, and uh, making that somebody else's problem. But uh, I think there's probably be a resistance to doing that. I, I think they will probably only carry it past the elections several weeks, maybe into de- December.
4: I think the, uh, the pay raise is going to be something people are watching again. You've got <clears throat> the union's Still pushing for like more than five percent increase, and then the appropriation bill just kind of was silent on it, uh, and and there are some uh, actually more more the local representatives here who have a lot of federal employees and contractors in their district are are, um, are still kind of gunning for that, uh, getting that. Um, Pay reason and there's also still some interest, believe it or not, in transit benefits. Not just in the district, but uh, or around the beltway, but across the country, where people who are, uh, you know, having to drive two hours a day, which sounds kind of not, you know, in the grand scheme of you know the NDAA and its six hundred billion dollar uh, budget, this is you know. The workers, the federal workers, and that's what they're really interested in is, am I going to get my pay raise? And is there going to be anything in there uh, about retroactive or current uh, transit benefits so that I can help offset uh, the cost of my gas, my train rides, that kind of thing? That's what we're hearing, at least anyway, from our readers.
3: Yeah, I I think the answer to the pay raise is that yes, they will get the 1.6%. And no, they will not get 5.3%. I mean, I think that's pretty clear. Um, you know, the transit benefits, yes, again, that, that's that's one of the many kind of in-kind sorts of payments that federal employees can get, and there's been talk of tweaking that, but uh, it's, it's really an issue of, do the agencies have the money in their budgets to uh, pay this, and uh, have they actually budgeted for it from the outset? Did those uh, uh, funds make it through the process all the way to the end, and uh, you know, many agencies do budget for it, especially, as you say, in, this ne- in the national capital area. Uh, otherwise, maybe not so much. So the authority is there and, and the authority is in the tax code uh, and the dollar amount is in the tax code. I don't see them increasing the dollar amount because that's kind of on a uh, an automatic inflation sort of path. Uh, but the question really is, uh, you know, do agencies uh, make a priority of 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 setting this money aside and actually making it available to employees who are not already benefiting from it. Uh, and again, it's very common around here, but not so common everywhere else.
1: Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think you, you make an interesting point that, that some of these issues are, are, are baked into broader uh, concepts, whether it is the tax code, whether it's uh, how it affects other uh, segments of of society. And, and sometimes that, that makes things... Uh, Trickier or, or, or greases the wheels to, uh, to forward progress um, on those issues. And we're going to pause here and take our uh, second break of the program. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.
0: If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message.
2: You are listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. We are joined today for a reporter roundtable to discuss what Congress has accomplished before they left and what we will expect to see in the next coming months. Um, We talked a little bit about some of the themes that uh, we saw before Congress left for convention. So I'd be remiss to kind of leave those out. They've carried over a little bit into what we've seen this week. And I imagine what we've seen, what we will see next week um, around veterans and a couple different themes. Uh, Meredith, I know we were talking a little bit about a couple things before uh, we started the show, a little bit about accountability, about Mm -hmm. what Homeland Security is moving into. Can you give us kind of a a quick update on that? Sure. So. We talk about accountability with current employees, but the
4: government is still always hiring them. And uh, this year or this, this session, uh, Congress got what it had been asking for for a while, which was some final guidance from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence on how to work in social media into background checks. Uh, everybody's got a Facebook account now. Everybody's got a LinkedIn account or at least something like that. And the question from Congress was, OK, well, how how do you want to go about using this in a background check? You know, what what can OPM do? What can the people, the recruiters do? How far can they go as far as researching? I mean, a lot of people have their Facebook uh, pages public. Like you can just go on and I, you can see yours, mine, uh, but some people don't. And so what uh, OD and I said was that, you know, if it's publicly available, go on, see what's there. Uh, but one of the questions that was left open and which Congress wants to hear back, and we might get that later uh, in September, is um, can you ask someone, well, do you have another alias? I mean, Maybe you, there's, you know, go on. There's probably a lot of John Smiths online, mm-hmm. and maybe that is the John Smith you're looking to find out a little bit more about uh, for a, a job that has a, a security clearance. Uh, and at what point is that stepping over the line? Uh, and so the um, ODNI, their officials who were testifying said, well, w- we don't have that in there, but we, you know, I guess we could ask because uh, they can ask, you know, do you have an alias on the paper when you fill it out uh, in case you go by another name? And so that's something that uh, Congress should be hearing back from ODNI about. Uh, but it kind of, you know, it's adding social media and now more than ever into Homeland Security.
1: You know, I think that the, the social media and the background checks um uh, work that's going on there, both both the emphasis and focus on on in, in Congress as well as in the administration, whether it's ODNI and OPM and the other groups, DOD that are working on this, uh, is also can be seen through this broader lens of uh, um, kind of the the awakening that the government has uh, as to its cybersecurity posture yes. uh, following the uh, the massive uh, OPM uh, hacks um, last year, and, and and there's a lot of uh, attention to that. I believe uh, Lamar Smith, the chairman of the House. Mm-hmm. Um, Science Committee recently um, sent off some letters to, to OPM and, and others um, asking about what's going on and, and doesn't necessarily think that the, what the administration has been doing on the cyber front has been completely adequate. Um, Meredith or Eric, or, or, or when are one or both you able to, to speak to, to those conversations a little bit?
3: Why
4: uh, Oh, go ahead, Eric.
3: Sorry. Well, yeah, I, uh, th- there, there actually is already language in one of the appropriations bills, so the general government bill. Which basically uh, kind of puts a break on on what OPM is doing, uh, pending some better information to Congress. So uh, this is an area of, of congressional concern. They're, they're, they frankly don't know if OPM is the right place to be fixing this problem, since the problem happened on their ship in the first <clears throat> in the first place. Excuse me. Uh, so. <clears throat> I think uh, the the answer long-term the administration wants to uh, impose is that they want to actually move the cyber aspects of this whole thing, uh, the personnel records and the uh, uh, security clearance records, excuse me, to, to the Defense Department, and they announced that early in the year. Uh, but that's an ongoing process, and in, for the meantime, they're just trying to uh, plug the holes in what OPM has. and. And uh, the inspector general at OPM has raised uh, red flags about this uh, issue several times, including most recently only a couple of months ago. So uh, that's, that's one of the things that uh, uh, I don't think the members of Congress necessarily believe that OPM is, is the right agency for this job, and they're not sure whether uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the barn door has been
0: closed.
4: Just cybersecurity as a whole, too. Every time there's an agency in front of a Congressional Oversight Committee, they're saying, hey, we need a little bit more money for cybersecurity because something like this could happen to us, something like what happened with OPM could happen to us, Education Department, IRS, that has a lot of personal, very confidential information. And then circling back to the appropriations, you see there's still not enough money coming into that. And so you have the agencies and like OPM going, we can only do so much with Mm -hmm. what you give us. And then we're just. We can't do anything, anything further.
1: And there's a there's a broader conversation in in Congress that that partially gets at this, which is the the legacy systems that, mm-hmm. that many agencies have. And uh, I believe it's we're, we're spending upwards of eighty percent of uh, of our IT spending in the government on maintaining and updating those those legacy systems. And there's a both an administration proposal as well as a response to that proposal from uh, Representative William Hurd, who's uh, the chairman of the uh, Oversight Committee's IT subcommittee in the House, and um, the the administration's proposal basically would create a a kind of government-wide fund, uh, whereas the the House bill kind of would give each agency their own kind of working capital fund, and it'll be interesting to see um, where those conversations are going. Are you able to fill us a little bit more on on what each of you are hearing about that, uh, Meredith? Uh,
4: so the administration has proposed the $3.1 billion modern, IT modernization fund. Tony Scott's been the champion of that. And yeah, it's kind of like a revolving door where you're an agency and you say, hey, this is what I'd like to do with this money. Here's the milestones that we will meet. And, and the idea is, OK, then here's your money. Show us uh, what you're doing. And then as you update your IT, as you hit these milestones and deliverables, then you give that money back and then the next agency can come and say, hey... Uh, this is what we would like to do. and the idea is that everything gets updated and you know you get more secure programs, you get uh, better equipment, uh, hardware software, all that. Um, and, and so Tony Scott uh, recently has, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what are the chances of this is actually happening? He said, well, you know it, it's going to be tough because you're going into a transition. There's only so much more time left. You know Congress has got to get behind that. Um, he seemed cautiously optimistic about it, but then that could be why Congress sent off- Hurt uh, has offered up his own, uh, proposal for something like this.
1: Absolutely, well, you know, it's it's obviously going to be an an ongoing conversation, and uh, you know, it's even an issue that has touched on some of the presidential campaigns. Um, you know, as some of the, I think that there was a month or two ago, I remember reading something about uh, one of the campaigns was hacked, and some of their databases were were accessed. And so, this is a much broader issue that is affecting kind of all elements of our, our society as, as folks become more aware to to the vulnerabilities and, and how we go about um, ensuring that, that folks are, are best protected.
3: Yeah, I, you know, I think in the context of the federal government, it's not just a matter of the hardware. It's a matter of the people as well. Mm-hmm. And that's been an increasing concern over the years that the federal government has not been able to attract enough employees uh, uh, and are enough employees with the the kind of skills, high high level skills in many cases, that are needed to actually operate these systems, to anticipate where threats may occur, and to uh, you know re- respond to any breaches that come up. And uh, OMB has recently put out a a, a cyber security uh, uh, workforce strategy, uh, which follows up on on prior strategies uh, uh, in that direction, but. Uh, as you read through that, it's, it's clear that it's, there are both short-term and long-term problems. Uh, short-term, uh, frankly, federal salaries in the, that area simply are not very competitive uh, with what uh, these people can get in the private sector. Um, and second issue is that longer-term, the colleges need to produce more people with these skills. And, uh, uh, this is, you know, if you've got those sorts of skills... You can pretty much write your own ticket. And so um, I think the, the the government probably has done a pretty good job over the last few years of, of recognizing where the gaps are. But uh, in terms of filling those gaps, uh, I think that they're really holding their breath.
4: Yeah, DHS has, I think, kind of been the spear- or spearhead on that. Like they have a... a- hiring fair next week because they need more people, more cybersecurity personnel. There's so many agencies that say, hey, we're waiting around. And, And like Eric was saying, it can take a while. It's Well, it's not nearly as sexy as like going to Silicon Valley and working for Google or Amazon or something like that. But there is a mission in the government. And so DHS is like, hey, we will help you write your... Uh, your job posting, because we need young people who are willing to come in and work for the government. And the other problem is that it takes however many weeks or months if you go on USA Jobs to fill out a form and then wait to hear back. And by then you could have applied to a bunch of other jobs. Uh, So it's kind of balancing, well, spinning two plates of, okay, we need to bring in more people, but how do we streamline that hiring process and where are we going to get the money to do it?
3: Yeah, the, uh, the hiring thing is part of that strategy, and uh, they're, one of the provisions they're talking about is, is you know being able to make a, a conditional job offer mm. at a career fair. But it's not just how long it takes to get through the uh, USA jobs process, which is really kind of a scandal, but it's also, okay, well, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll take you on, but how long does it take us to get the kind of security clearance uh, you're going to need? And um, so another element of that is, okay, maybe is there a way that we can speed up the security clearance process when we bring people on board um, uh, and not have them wait three or four weeks or months or however long it would be to uh, uh, actually start bringing them in? And, and as I said, uh, the uh, risk, obviously, is that you can get an equal or, or better job offer uh, somewhere else, and they'll put you to work right away. Uh, but, you know, I think the government does have the advantage of, you know, you're not just plugging some department store's uh, security system. You're, you know, you're plugging the CIA security system. And 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 that's that is a you know, that should be a highly attractive uh, thing for for somebody who uh, has these particular skills. So I, whether the government sells themselves uh, that well, I don't think it does. Mm-hmm. But if they manage to make some of these other changes in combination with with the attractiveness of, of uh, working on something that's really important, uh, I think they might be well-positioned to do it. But, again, it's it's going to take a combination of money. It's going to take a combination of speeding up the hiring process. And it's going to take a, a, a commitment by the agencies to, to say this is – Key to our mission accomplishment.
1: Absolutely, you know this has been in the past few years. Both the DoD and DHS have have been granted uh, expedited hiring authorities, as well as I believe somewhat enhanced pay authority for cybersecurity professionals. Um, but again, there there is that challenge in getting folks in, and in part, and also folks getting poached while they while they are awaiting their their security clearance process, which which can be lengthy and is. Um, practically mandatory for for working at those sorts of agencies. Um, so there really is a, a dichotomy and, and challenge there and uh, one of the conversations that, that we are hearing, I think federal news radio did a, did a conversation with the uh, um, DHS uh, Chief human capital Officer Angie Bailey talking about we're not necessarily looking for people to to decide to, to work for their entire career here in government mm-hmm. but but the the mission of government that the issues that that, that folks are going to be working on is is a really great. Way for people to get experience, and and are there ways that we can facilitate greater um, in and out interaction of of workforce between government and industry? And I think that that's an interesting conversation. That uh, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, filters into some of these other conversations around, um, you know, civil service reform and and things of that nature.
3: Well, you know, in terms of the compensation, it gets back to the old argument of, uh, you know, what's the best approach to, uh, you know. Putting money into the federal workforce you know should you give across-the-board raises or should you uh, be much more targeted in and where the where the money goes and if you are targeted does that mean that there's less for somebody else and uh, that's that's a long-running argument and I don't know if, if either political party has ever really resolved that issue but I think there is certainly a broad recognition that uh, the government's uh, compensation package is not Um, adequate for certain jobs that are in especially high demand Uh, whether they can come up with the extra money without saying okay well our our studies say that people over in this other category over here you know federal employees are doing pretty well in comparison therefore we will uh, take a little bit of money from them out of their future raises and put it over here Again, there's been a lot of resistance to that for the same old reason of of the demand for equity within the government.
1: Absolutely, um, we'll 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 continue watching this conversation and um, and and see what happens in the future. We're going to take our last break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some uh, expectations for September and uh, a little bit of a discussion of how the uh, uh, National Republican and Democratic Party conventions and their platforms might uh, affect the uh, end of year legislating that we're we're going to see in the next few months. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, fifteen hundred AM.
2: Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show. We've been talking about what Congress has accomplished in this session and what we can look forward to in the coming months. So let's kick that off with Meredith. What is it that we are going to see in September, possibly into lame duck? How is that? Uh, what are we going to see coming up? So uh, veterans' affairs, real big issue. We're still going to uh, still a lot of
4: unanswered questions. Uh, later this summer, we're going to get the uh, Veterans Affairs Commission on Care. They're coming out with their final report on, healthcare, on the health care system. They're handing that to Congress. So I'm sure we're going to hear some feedback on, on what uh, the lawmakers liked, what they didn't, uh, what can change. Uh, we'll also, um, the, the Omnibus Veterans First Act, which addresses everything from health care to hiring, firing. Uh, we'll also That'll also be taken up uh, by the Senate Hall later in uh, September and that also goes back to what I was saying earlier about John McCain's bill uh, with the Veterans Choice Program. Uh, we're also So veterans, a lot of questions on that. They're also dealing with their IT uh,
2: as far as their health records. Uh, a lot of question marks behind the VA. Eric, what are, what are your predictions that we're going to see coming up? I know before the show we were talking about, you know, uh, what's going to happen with the CR. Is there going to be a potential shutdown? What is it that you're, you're predicting for our future here?
3: Yes, well, I, I agree that I think there's a very strong pressure to do something about the VA. Whether that will include uh, some of these provisions regarding the personnel provisions is, is another issue, uh, but there's, there's it's, it's hard for me to see that they will go back and face the voters in the fall without at least having tried to do something about uh, some of these VA bills. Uh, and also bear in mind that some of the bills... Uh, contain provisions, for example, uh, strengthening whistleblower protections for VA employees, which I think would be something that that the employees very much would uh, would welcome. Because uh, unfortunately, one of the fallouts of the revelations at VA has been retaliation against the people who told the truth. So there's uh, that's that's an aspect of the accountability issue that that uh, I think uh, the Republicans certainly have made uh, a key theme of, of their. Uh, of of their focus this year and which they are going to continue to uh, make as a key theme during the run-up to the election. Um, In terms of the continuing resolution, I I think there's probably very little chance of a government shutdown. Uh, I think the Republicans hopefully uh, maybe learned their lesson the last time uh, that this is not a tactic that the American public favors for uh, 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 forcing action on, some relatively small issue uh, in the context of of, uh, uh, disrupting services to the uh, general public. Um, I don't think there's going to be a shutdown, but, of course, I have been wrong about that in the past. I think the most likely opportunity for them would be to, again, as I said earlier, continuing funding until sometime maybe in the second second week or so of December, I would give them time to come back and work for a couple of weeks and uh, recess before uh, the holidays. I I really don't think that they're going to carry it over past uh, the new year, although that has been done uh, before, and certainly you can't rule that out. Uh, But uh, the decision there will be informed very much by the outcome of the elections, and I don't think they want to make a commitment at least before the elections to uh, letting the next Congress and the next administration deal with things because they may be in a, each party may be looking at it and saying we'll be in a worse position in January than we are now. So I, I I really don't think they will carry it over into the new year. And then so you would end up with a situation where, you know, during December there would be probably some continuing type budget measure enacted carrying agencies through the remainder of the fiscal year and through the next September uh, basically knitting together all the appropriations bills that had made a certain amount of progress so far,
2: and we talked a little bit about you know um, the ongoing theme uh, that that we've seen that's probably going to go into the conventions, um, talking about veterans accountability um, and things like that. Uh, there's also been a lot of talk uh, in recently around borrowing. Is that something that we're going to continue to have these discussions on as we we see the end of the Obama administration coming? I think definitely. Uh,
4: just the other day, the House Oversight sent out uh, letters to all 24 of the big agencies saying, asking for a list of everyone that they've transferred over from a political appointee to uh, a full-time position. Um, and that's not the first time that they've asked for this information. Uh, and just the other day, uh, Chris Christie was talking about you know, the fact that Donald Trump, if he is elected, he's going to uh, find track down and, and make a make a way to fire some of the people who have burrowed in. Um, so that's a real, real big issue for uh, not only uh, the House oversight, but at least for some of the political candidates.
3: Yeah, I, I have to say that there's a lot more symbolism there than there is reality. Mm. Uh, the, I mean, it, symbolically, it's important uh, because there is supposed to be this distinction between career people and, and political appointees. Uh, and, you know, to the extent that political appointees take positions that could have been open to career employees that you know does restrict their uh, uh, career advancement opportunities. But you know the last time that uh, this happened, uh, GAO did a report um, uh, requested by the Democrats about how many uh, Bush administration people had burrowed in. And, and they found something in the neighborhood of something over hundred uh, people had uh, made these kinds of conversions over, I think it was an 18 month or two year period. And of those, GAO found that, you know, people were perfectly qualified and all but like half a dozen of the jobs. So, you know, hopefully by the time somebody has been in a job a few years, they're qualified to perform it and continue to perform it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's going to be there, uh, but at the size of the federal workforce, I mean, you know, this is a Nats eyelash. But, uh, so the symbolism is, is much more important than the reality. Yeah. And, and that, that's true. There is
4: like that balance of, okay, well, there are people who have institutional knowledge. You need to have some kind of a, a transition there or some kind of overlap, um, you know, because you want somebody in there who can do the job while there's other switchovers with the, with the new administration.
1: And, you know, kind of this conversation is interesting because I think it's uh, looking ahead to this fall uh, as we're, we're trying to determine how much of a balance will there be between kind of substantive and important lawmaking versus Uh, chasing some of these issue, Mm non-issues that that sound like a big deal unless you actually know what you're talking about. And and to Eric's point, yes, absolutely burrowing in is, is, is a thing. It happens Employee groups are concerned about it. Uh, you know, I know the Senior Executives Association and other groups are, are worried about it. But, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it, it's it's sometimes more of a, a distraction from some of the bigger mm-hmm. things that, that Congress is doing. Uh, just in terms of uh, kind of your, your thoughts on what we're looking at in this, this last kind of two, two weeks or so, when, when Congress is back in September, uh, what are your thoughts on, on kind of how they find that balance between uh, substance and, uh, and, and politicking?
3: Uh, well, I, I, I can. Uh, I, I think the the VA provisions are substantive because they are talking about uh, protecting people who have blown the whistle, uh, and in those cases, they are talking about mandatory discipline against the supervisors who did the retaliating. And um, I I think there's a, there's a, a pretty strong pressure for for something like that to be enacted. And again, uh, maybe not this year, certainly probably not this year, but you do something like that for VA you pretty much have to extend it to the rest of the workforce. Um, on the other side of the coin, there are some things that just play to, um, you know, segments of, of each party's base that uh, really don't make that big a difference in, in the operations of the federal government. We, You know, we talked about uh, the, the provision regarding uh, 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 official time, monitoring official time. Um, there's a provision in the uh, Republican platform which says that, Federal employees should not be given official time to work for on union jobs or union duties. Um, again, that's the sort of thing. As you say, if you know a little more about the issue, you have a different perspective on it. Maybe um, the unions argue uh, that you know the provision for official time is a trade-off uh, that was included many years ago uh, to uh, their responsibility to re- represent everybody, even if they pay dues or not. And uh, that very explicitly was the trade-off at the time. Uh, and so if you take, that, take it out of the, that context, yes, it looks uh, strange that the federal government pays people uh, as part of their official salary time to uh, um, work on union duties. You know, if you unravel that compromise, maybe you have to unravel the other half of the compromise. And I'm not sure that's something that, uh, that the Republicans would want to touch.
4: I think accountability is still going to be a big issue, uh, whether it's just hearings to kind of get up and yell and scream or to actually uh, try to make a change before before the elections. But and of course, defense is also going to be a big deal and what those funds are going to go for, go towards. Are they going to uh, continue to finance, you know, whatever's going on overseas into the next year? And that's, of course, uh, always a big topic for both candidates during an election. So That's what I think they're going to be talking about.
3: Yes, uh, you know, and I think on accountability, you know, frankly, a lot of federal agencies haven't done themselves any favors mm-hmm. uh, by the things that they have allowed employees to get away with, uh, you know, watching pornography at work and all this kind of stuff. This, these 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 uh, phony bonus policies, where they split up the bonus to make it look like you're, you know, keep it under some uh, annual limit and spread the money out over time. You know, uh, these sorts of things. I mean, they they just they just play right into the hands of people who uh, argue that the government is inherently corrupt and, and unable to police its own uh, uh, workforce. And uh, so th- that will continue to come up through the uh, campaign, certainly, um, issues such as IRS employees being delinquent on their own taxes. Well, that's again, that's a fly spec, but it looks bad.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: And the government is not, you know, frankly, the government has not uh, kept its own house in order on a lot of these things, and and now you you see the the effect.
1: Great. Well, well, thank you so much, um, Eric Yoder from the Washington Post, uh, Meredith Summers from here at Federal News Radio, Nikki Cannon, my colleague and co-host. Uh, thanks for joining us. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. Have a great weekend and stay cool out there.